we collaborated really well together. It's just that we were always fighting about something else. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Who Cares Anyway podcast. My guest on this episode is Paul Draper, or to be a little more precise, Paul Wendell Draper of The Sleepers. Now, some of you might be asking, what is with all this stuff about The Sleepers? And I should uh, clarify that I certainly did not uh, fall out of the womb listening to The Sleepers. I did not come across their music until about 2000. Five, uh, and that was through the CD compilation The Less an Object, uh, which collects the Sleepers' uh, first EP, which Paul Draper was a part of, then a uh, seven inch mirror slash theory that he did not play on, and then the LP Painless Nights that also uh, post dated Mr. Draper's time in the band. But that CD captured almost everything the Sleepers recorded, at least. Uh, in the studio, not counting some live stuff that has surfaced elsewhere. But in any event, Paul Draper was a founding member of the Sleepers, and as we'll hear in this interview, uh, had been playing music with Ricky Williams elsewhere in Palo Alto and uh, surrounding areas, dating back to about 1975. We also hear about the uh, pre-punk glam scene in Palo Alto, uh, such as it was, and uh, its sort of counterpart up in San Francisco, and uh, just a lot of interesting prehistory that is sort of alluded to, but not elaborated on in uh, the actual book, Who Cares Anyway? A couple of other things, um, because of the nature of these interviews and the fact that I I edit them down, there are a couple of references that are sort of lost. Uh, After the first little interlude, I refer to a he It might seem like I'm referring to Michael Kowalski, but no, I'm referring to Ricky Williams in the context of the band Crime, which Ricky was the original drummer for. And then after a later break, I refer to, uh, or later on in the interview, I refer to another he mentioning a house at 8th and Howard or apartment at 8th and Howard in San Francisco. And uh, that is Michael, Michael Belfer, uh, who talks about this uh, kind of legendary or infamous uh, dwelling at 1183 Howard. But without further ado, we'll go ahead and get into the interview. And that's actually going to start out with Paul Draper sort of starting from the beginning. Well, Ricky and I technically lived in Mountain View and Michael lived in Palo Alto and Tim lived in Menlo Park, uh, I believe at the time. So there was pretty much nothing in Mountain View as far as clubs. Palo Alto had, let's see, we were coming off the glam era and David Bowie and that kind of stuff. So they had like this little club called the My Oh My that a lot of the, I guess you would call them hipster kids like went to but it was more like glam and dress up and kind of before punk but i uh we never played there but they might have had some acts playing there and there was another place in palo alto but i can't recall right now offhand um so you know it's basically a 
wasteland, you know, bar bands. That's about the best you're going to get. Once the movement started, or what if you want to call it a movement, um, the new varsity theater, which was uh, an old, uh, a really old uh, movie theater which, with a stage. And so they had actually a sleepers played there a couple times uh, to big crowds. But that would be well after 77, 78, maybe 78, 79. And then, and then the other thing that uh, they opened the Keystone Palo Alto, part of the Keystone trio of clubs. San Francisco was the Stone, which right. was really, really near the Mabuhe. And Berkeley had the Keystone Berkeley. Mm -hmm. The Stone was mostly hard rock. So we never actually played the Stone, but we played the other two. And there was a big, Kind of similar to what happened in LA at the whiskey. There was a like a, a punk rock night, you know, like it was like the novel thing. So they brought up all the bands from San Francisco, the top ones, which was us, uh, the nuns. Um, who who else was it? Uh, maybe maybe it was Negative Trend. I can't remember the whole bill, but there's like three or four bands at that gig, and at, so. The Keystone Palo Alto was like a giant Quonset hut with with the arched, like the cow palace, kind of like a curved arch ceiling made out of tin, basically. But what happened, if you turned up really too loud in that place, it was just like cacophony. You couldn't like hear or make anything out. It was just reverberation all over the place, just like painful. And we, we knew that and we liked to play loud, but we turned down for our set we turned way down and actually our set ended up sounding pretty good because of that um yeah and you played in a band it was called trigger which i think i mentioned in a footnote and you mentioned a dirk etienne and i saw that he later at least put out a, a single on maybe casablanca but what was trigger like uh trigger was probably the one of the only glam rock bands from palo alto <laughs> like, but he he was uh he's an interesting guy because his he's from a pretty wealthy family in salinas you know salinas valley mm -hmm. so he was the lead singer and he basically drafted me into trigger like because he saw me playing guitar acoustic guitar on the lawn at in college <laughs> like at foothill college um and and then he asked me if i ever played bass and i said no uh and he said oh i have a bass i'll give you this bass you can play in my band basically <laughs> and so he gave me a hagstrom like i think it was hagstrom bass like which was a semi hollow body and then he also like bought all the amps and everything in the band and uh i mean his dad was a like an attorney big attorney in salinas and his, Mom owned the huge lumber company, the Tynan Lumber Company in the Salinas Valley. So that was, you know, that was that. But he was, uh, he was pretty cool. He was very into uh, like pop, glam, like um, Bay City Rollers, all the way to Iggy, uh, Iggy to Bowie to Elton John, and. Um, so he brought a, a guitar player from Salinas and the drummer and I were from 
uh, Palo Alto area. The drummer was, uh, let's see, if you want names, the drummer was Russ Gottfried, I think. And the guitarist was Mike Martin. Did you all come close to uh, doing any recording or were you, were you doing originals or I guess you were doing Yeah, originals. we did a lot of originals, one or two covers. Okay. Um, we didn't go into the studio, but we were doing like homemade tapes, but um, it didn't last long enough because he was like, let's see what happened. He was uh, basically transplanted from Salinas, right? Just going to school. Oh, okay. Or Dirk Etienne. And then he decided to change the name of the band from Trigger to Mercury Dirk. <laughs> <laughs> With his, you know, so it became like Mercury Dirk after that. And then, uh, but it was still, we had a lot of fun. You know, a lot of like spandex, uh, not spandex so much, but lame, silver lame. I think I had like a silver, what's that, what's that material? um oh yeah the jacket i had a silver jacket which was really cool and we all had platform really high platform shoes did you all ever play up in san francisco or was it all down in the uh, palo alto area we played palo alto santa cruz but not san francisco i mean i don't think anyone would let us play you know right. <laughs> like, because this stuff wasn't that style wasn't done, and we maybe we would have figured out where we could have played eventually, but I we sort of fractured off because we were all uh what we we kind of traveled the same circle. So Ricky was around, Ricky Williams, right from, from the sleepers, and his sister Kathy Williams, his his little sister, let's see, and was Michael Kowalski around at that point? Yeah, he was bouncing around. Yeah. <laughs> and Clem Smith, who played lead guitar. Have you ever heard of him? You know, I've heard Michael mentioned him, but I didn't know. I think he just referred to him as this guy. I can't remember if he knew his last name. He referred to a Clem. He referred to a Nola. Yeah, Clem was the, uh, he, at one time, he was a boyfriend of Linda. Oh, okay. uh, Linda Cowan, who the Linda song was written about. And he was the son of a, a very prestigious music professor at Stanford. Music and also computer uh, science, computer music, computer science. So, And Mike, Michael Kowalski's dad was a professor there as well. He was a physics. And he was either, he might have been San Jose State. I'm not positive. Oh, okay. If he was Stanford, but he was a professor. And, and both Clem, both, both Clem and Kowalski went to Gunn High School, whereas Ricky, for instance, went, well, he was supposed to go to Pali, Palo Alto High School, uh, but he was always in the alternative school along with Michael Belfer. <laughs> you know? Oh, which, I did. Which, okay. And Tim, and Tim Mooney, where they put people that were always, you know, Oh, okay. In I didn't, trouble. I didn't realize. I didn't. He didn't quite fill me in on that. But I was because I was going to ask where where uh, when Ricky came into the picture because you all started. Play, you all were playing music together, and here's where I've heard two different stories. One of them remembered Ricky 
being um, well michael remembered ricky being a drum you know just a drummer at that point playing drums and you playing i don't know i guess guitar guitar yeah but, but, guitar. but according to you he ricky was already singing at that point as well sometimes but not yeah. in a band but okay. i met i think uh when i first met ricky he showed up with his if i rec recall he showed up with his little sister at a party that trigger was having and we most uh Dirk Etienne and I lived together in a house in um Palo Alto near Whiskey Gulch which doesn't exist anymore because it's all developed now but that's that's like next to the 101 freeway in Palo Alto which was the only place you could buy alcohol because of the everything was dry because of the college for a long time I mean that changed over time but but anyway, so here, like Ricky and, and uh, Kathy, his sister, come in, and I don't know who else came in. And I believe they were like pretty high, or Ricky was pretty high. And that was like the first time I met him. Like, we're going, like, who is this guy? He was just like, kind of like arrived in dramatic fashion. I don't know how he found out about the party, but someone probably invited him. I see. I, see, I don't know Palo Alto very well. I've heard Whiskey Gulch, but. Palo Alto being pretty being the center of Silicon Valley, but at the time it wasn't really known that way yet. Is that right? Only to people in the silicon in the uh, semiconductor industry. Okay. There, there was no software industry. It hadn't like got to that point yet. But uh, the people that were making semiconductors were from there, and Mountain View, and Palo Alto, and Menlo Park, River City. You know, Hewlett Packard. They were making devices, Fairchild, semiconductor, you know. Uh, it was a college town. So you got to like, Palo Alto is like between the 101 freeway, which, you know, goes from San Francisco down to San Jose and keeps going past San Jose. But so Palo Alto is nestled between that and Stanford, right, which is west in the hills, basically, or near the hills almost to the hills. So, so Whiskey Gulch is like right smack up against the freeway, pretty much that neighborhood, which is actually where Ricky lived for a while. He lived there and a couple other spots in Mountain View. Um, so technically he did live in, that was Palo Alto for a while. And was he doing any other bands at, before you started playing or um, how did no, you start he playing was with kind him? Of like, uh, he sort of looked like he was emulating Iggy Pop with, with his look uh, at that time. And I think he was just singing like to himself and not really in bands, you know. Like I said, there weren't very many bands, right? Right. This is like very in the early, early days. There were bands, but they were all like corporate hard rock bands or people struggling to be a hard rock band <laughs> and playing bars, you know. Right. I, I heard similar stories from people who were in San Francisco in, in like 1975, 76, in, in terms of the limited options. And one reason why I asked if you played originals was that uh, a few people mentioned that it would it was hard to get away with playing originals. You'd have to sort of sneak them in your set at a lot of the places in San Francisco in, say, 1975. Um, well, they had, uh, have you heard of the Palms? 
Yes, that was, uh, I've, I've looked at their calendars. They had some pretty interesting kind of combinations, but Layla and the snakes would be sort of the right. one that so would they kind had of cross a lot of over. Gay, yeah. It was in the gay, what became the gay district, late, became later. I mean, it was sort of, all this stuff is like in the early stages, right? So you'd see a couple of bands play there, Layla and the snakes and maybe some others. It was kind of that, that, that period right before uh you know maybe 76 um, yeah which is which is basically when when around the time that you went up and and saw a crime that with with ricky in it so i guess maybe i'm jumping ahead but uh yeah that was uh uh yeah you, that's a little bit ahead but rick so what when dirk etienne decided to split the bay area and go back to salinas and i don't remember why that happened it's not like we were having a fight or anything i think he just uh did what he was going to do at Foothill. And then he went back there and we were kind of still in touch, but then here I had, you know, learned how to play bass guitar uh, after only playing guitar. So then I sort of, so I played both and then Ricky and I just kind of like hung out and then we just, just tried to jam and stuff. And he would play drums and, or sing. And I would play guitar sometimes and bass, uh, electric guitar or bass guitar. I had, I had a Telecaster uh, at that time and he had his drum kit. We got a couple microphones and then, so, you know, started writing songs. That's still on my list just to like dredge up those songs that no one's heard. <laughs> like, oh. Wow. Yeah. And was that even pre, that was before he. Pre-crime. Pre-crime. Pre yeah. Yeah. What do you remember about that? Because I came across one version of, of how he got involved in it, but do you remember anything about, um, you know, for again, for people listening, Palo Alto or, or where you all were up to San Francisco is what, like 45 minute drive and Ricky didn't drive? Yeah, we, you'd have to drive Ricky up there or someone, you'd have to get a ride. Um, well, Ricky liked to hang out in San Francisco. Sometimes he would just stay up there for days you know, crashing at people's houses and then, uh, and then come back and to his parents or his grandparents and, and uh, decompress. <laughs> but I had, I think I had a job or, uh, I believe I had a job in the advertising newspaper doing graphics. And so what was the, you had another question about? Oh yeah. Or if, if you remember how, because to me that was, the in, initial connection between Palo Alto and okay, between your part of the of Palo Alto music scene, where the sleepers came from, and San Francisco punk scene was, you know, Ricky uh, joining Crime, and time wise, I believe that would have been probably late summer, early fall of '76, because that that show that you uh, remember going to was a Halloween. 1976 up at the old Waldorf, uh, the benefit show that, that, um, you know, I've read about and heard about with that the fruit show. of the loom. With yeah, the exactly. Fruit of the loom. Did, yeah. Did I have I, that? Did I have that right? That was just my, you remember that? But yeah, but I saw another, uh, there was a very thorough, uh, oral history done in a zine, uh, ugly things. I think it was done in the nineties. So they had, okay. they had interviews with, uh, lots of, of quotes with, 
with Johnny and uh, Hank Rank and maybe uh, I don't know if Frankie was around at that point, but they told that the the story about that and it and it meshed with what you remembered, you know. Oh, good. A handful of people, and and so that's almost like prehistoric in the sense that uh, you know there was really no audience for that. Um, you know the the, right. the 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 Ramones had played maybe a month before up at the Savoy. So this is all before the Mabuhe really uh, had started booking any of these bands. And so, yeah, I, I, that was like really early kind of ground zero. And I just was wondering if you remembered uh, a lot, that initial A lot had to it. do with, uh, with Michael Kowalski, like being a catalyst because he was so into the, uh, the culture. And so he would, I think he was friends with uh, people in the tubes. Like um, the band, the Tubes, Prairie right. Print, okay. Bill Spooner. So he he was around during the uh, the glam and the progressive rock, Roxy music, that kind of stuff. So he was he was around during that time too. So he like bounced back between Palo Alto and San Francisco as well. So he was he was I mean the best word is a catalyst and like a agitator. Pro, uh, pro, what is it? Progenitator or whatever that is. Um, <laughs> no, I know what you mean. There's a word that's on the tip of my tongue as well. Um, um, so he had introduced people, and I, I think he was uh, a big reason Ricky ended up playing drums in Crime. Yeah, that was that was exactly what I read uh, in that in that um, oral history, uh, the ugly things thing on Crime. They they mentioned exactly that 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 Michael Kowalski had um, somehow fallen asleep and you know somehow made it into their rehearsal studio and um <laughs> passed out and they just started playing and he just sat, sat there and listened we never we haven't uh to the listeners introduced michael kowalski but he he definitely appears well his picture his photo will appear in the book and he um is talked about in the book and yeah he he wasn't around that long relative to this but uh, yeah he's a very brilliant guy and just tragically another casualty you know too early um but one thing about michael he would uh finagle all the new records before anyone else could get them you know <laughs> like the sex pistols and the ramones and so he would like show up with the with the with the uh what was the first sex pistols uh single uh god save the queen i think or was it or was yeah, it anarchy? I should, I should and he know. would show up with that, like, and no one had it yet, you know, <laughs> like uh, things like that. Yeah, so it's you can't. It's hard to put a finger. I mean, he he was he was in UXA, but he didn't play an instrument, which is, in, or or he didn't well, play he an wrote, instrument in the band. He wrote poetry. He wrote, so, he wrote you know, poetry. Right. He was kind of, you know, like a almost like a Malcolm McLaren figure, maybe, uh, like, right? You know, right. like a manager or. Uh, again, something you don't really have today, but something that. Um... Well, he was he was also very caustic, and he could be really like a very caustic wit and put people down, and you know a lot of that put off a lot of people because uh, he was just so bright. But he would uh, he did destroy my copy of uh, Anarchy in the UK when he got in a fight, and it was like under his coat. And he he went sailing across the asphalt during this fight, not with me. And that was like my first 
first issue, you know, first mint issue of, of uh, Anarchy in the UK, but then he he found it uh, later and he gave me another copy. So. Did the sleepers start while the sleepers started rehearsing while he was still in crime? For sure. Well, you have, uh, it depends on whether, uh, see, from my vantage, it's the sleepers really started when Ricky and I were writing songs together before he was in crime and during and while he was still in crime, because that's where we were, uh, we were also playing with Mike White. Ah, right. uh, the the second guitarist who came officially came later, much later. But uh, this, so this is pre this is before Mike Belfer and and Tim Mooney. So that's the way I would I would say. But we didn't call ourselves the Sleepers. We were just doing stuff, you know, writing and rehearsing. And we had a rehearsal space up in the hills from uh, the guy who owned. Um, no relation, but he owned Draper's Music Center, which was a music store. It was a beautiful home, and he they were just gone for the summer. Or his wife, maybe his, maybe his wife stayed up there. Uh, maybe they were separated. I can't I can't quite remember the whole story. So we would just drive up into Portola, I think Portola Valley Hills, and then rehearse up there. We'd just bring beer and stuff with us, just me and Ricky. <laughs> And so that was pretty fun. And we didn't have to pay them. They let us do it for free. I don't know how I finagled that one, but maybe the, the guy just liked me because I had the same name. <laughs> <laughs> Is that where you all started with when um, Michael and Tim joined? Because I remember there was oh, no, another... No, that was still even later because okay. once the summer was over, I guess that was... Either the summer of 75 or 76, I'm thinking, when we were up in the hills. No, because we had to stop because they came back. And, uh, we had to leave. Uh, uh, so where Michael, uh, well, you know, Michael's story says he ran into Ricky and he thought he was the, he looked like the perfect singer. But Michael didn't know me. He didn't know that Ricky and I knew each other. You know, he just saw Ricky and liked him. So and then Ricky told him that I, he was rehearsing with me, and then so we all four of us got together, and and Mike was rehearsing with Tim Mooney, right? Uh, and but where we, we had to go find a place to play. Initially, we were playing in my apartment, which was not working too well in Redwood City because it was so loud. Uh, we could only do that a couple of times, and then the, you know wasn't tolerated anymore. <laughs> so we rented a place on birch street in old town uh midtown palo alto which is where all the skateboarders are from from palo alto and I mean, that's a side story so that's the south the south part of palo alto so it was like above uh, a restaurant or above a store just like a, a office space and we empty so we just rented it and uh got really hot up there <laughs> you know not very good ventilation but uh that's where we were doing it for a while and then and then then we got that big place in san jose 
Yeah, I'm trying to was, uh, remember the name. There was what was the name? There was some connection to somebody in Journey, like maybe the brother of somebody in Journey. Yeah, right, right, right. And I'm trying That's... to remember the name of the band, and it's escaping me. They played at the Miners' Benefit. Um, looking. Oh, for you mean Caesar? Caesar. Caesar. Yeah, that's it. Was there some connection to them at the um, at at the studio that you all were renting? Or yeah, they completely? they had they rented the space next to ours. Oh, okay. So we became kind of like pals with them. I mean, this was like the not like San Francisco rehearsal studios. This is like sprawling South Bay, huge spaces, you know in these warehouses and you just got like this very large space you know and then um with a with a gallery like your your friends could go up in the gallery and watch you you know like a balcony okay and compared to iguana where my understanding is that bands didn't yeah. even necessarily bring their own equipment i mean they would play on shared equipment or is that iguana i don't know like sometimes some people brought their own okay um, but it wasn't like there were a lot of separate rooms there. It was like one common space or, uh, my, I, right. I've never been in, that was my understanding. Did you ever go, uh, did you ever rehearse in Iguana? Yeah, I think we did, uh, at a couple, okay. couple points, um, there and, uh, something blue studio. Uh, you've heard of that one. Um, hmm. some of these names escape me. Right. Because they don't exist anymore. Right, yeah. Iguana was like 76 to 83, and all kinds of, pretty much everybody seemed to have rehearsed there at some point, whether it was Flipper or Dead Kennedys. Uh, yeah, they, they were around for a while. I know there was like a gay bar called The Stud around the corner. Right, right. And, if, and yeah. Ricky used to like to go there and like get beer. <laughs> like... Right, I think because the stud was funny. still the stud was still there, and there was the place called the Eagle. I'm not sure if the Eagle was there in the '70s, but they started doing live music on like Thursday night, so we would go down there, um, you know, where it, where it was still very clearly, uh, you know, in in that, that that particular part of town that had its its reputation. It was the uh, sort of number one leather district. I mean, I guess you know, to yeah. say there there's a gay neighborhood, there was like multiple, and they were all maybe a little bit different. In there, well, uh, you know, the gay, the gay uh, evolution sort of coincided and came up at the same time as the punk thing came up, and the post-punk, and they sort of like crossed over each other in, at certain times, you know, but kind of still independent of each other. lot of bands at the time that had art school uh, connections especially the uh, art institute san francisco art institute but the sleepers uh like negative trend were, were a band that did not uh, maybe you studied you studied design i'm not sure but you were the only one who went to or pursued higher education in the sleepers but there were no there were no what i would understand to be art school people in the sleepers well i think um I think Michael went went back to uh, that's true. Music, that's true. Late later on, studies. right? Right. But, but at the time, uh, he was right out of high school. Yeah, I right? was more like a, a not art school. At that, I mean, I went to art school later, um, but 
at that time, I was not in art school per se. I was doing pragmatic commercial art just because I had the ability, you know, and had done done some of it in college. But yeah, that's the difference of the sleepers. No art school, you know, um, what do you call it? Uh, presumptions or I'm not saying that anything <laughs> wrong with those people, but we're we're basically more more working class. Uh, a, a lot like the Iggy and the Stooges, you know, we're working class and the Ramones, right? Right, right. Uh, so we, uh, in fact, Ricky hung out with Iggy for uh, quite a while. Yeah, when, how Iggy did that was, work? when Iggy was on his uh, lost, extended lost weekend phase. How long was he there? Because um, I've heard in, that he... In San Francisco? Yeah, that he was dating uh, Dee Dee or dating, if that's the right word, um, spending time with Dee Dee. Oh, Dee Dee Detroit? Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, I don't even know. It seems like a lot longer than it probably actually was. <laughs> but Dee Dee was, as you know, from Detroit, too. Right. Like okay. Duh. Dee Detroit. That's you right. might have known him in Detroit. I don't know. I'm not sure. Because I've heard, uh, for, certainly from Michael and just kind of being vaguely aware that the idiot tour came through, I believe it was maybe March of 77 and David Bowie was touring with him. And that's where uh, Michael told me this story about being up at some bar in San Francisco. And I can't remember which one or if he remembered, but do you, do you remember that show or did you all, all go up to that show together? To yeah, we all, and we all met um, Iggy and David Bowie. Uh, and there was a lot of tension between Ricky and Iggy because of Dee Dee, which was kind of funny, not funny, but just, you know, jealousy, you know, rivalry or whatever. Did he just kind of stay there after the show or not stay there, but stay in the area after the show? Or was this lost weekend at a different point in time? I think it was before that, maybe even before I really got to know Ricky very well. Or at this, or almost the same time, but no, that that didn't happen after the sleeper when the sleepers were together. Oh, okay. So and then Ricky started going with Dee Dee, and I think you know, I just remember this big room where and we were there. Dee Dee was there, Iggy was there, and like Ricky was glaring at at Iggy. <laughs> That's as I recall. <laughs> And then we went out into the bar and then we like I met Bowie and Iggy and the and realized like these guys are tiny. <laughs> Very small people, you know, physically. But do you remember what bar that was? Would that have been Polk Street or I don't know if it was a bar or if they just had an open bar wherever we were. Oh, uh, okay. Did you say it was the Waldorf? I can't even remember. I don't even, I don't even remember. I'd have to look up where the, that sounds about right. Um, but yeah, I'd have to look that and one And you up. said it was in what, what I, month is 77? I, be, I believe it was around March, but I could be wrong. It was, it was definitely around the same time. Um, the sleepers hadn't been together very long. That's all I know. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. It might have been after March 77, maybe later in 77. Okay. 
Yeah, because that that was like the very beginning of the Mabuhay. How, how do you remember your first uh, time going to the to the Mabuhay? Or I don't even know if you pronounce it Mabuhay or Mabuhay. Different people pronounce it different ways. I think I I called it the Mabuhay. Mabuhay. So okay. That's, I don't know if that's correct or not, but that's uh, the majority. I was seen. Well, the first kind of uh, exposure was I had was uh, before the Mabuhay. I took a road trip to New York. I'm backing up here with this guy named Dan Lazar. I don't know if you've heard that. I've heard that but name. He, yeah. he hung around with Kowalski and other people. But this was in 74, 75. We drove my Mustang. I had a 66 Mustang all the way to New York because he had a girlfriend that went to Vassar College upstate. But anyway, we ended up going to, the, to CBGB's. I had never heard of it, you know, <laughs> he he brought me there. And then, so, you know, what CBGB's is tiny, right? So there's like, oh, there's Patty Smith is there. I mean, probably everybody's there, you know, that because they all hung out there, right? Ramones. But anyway, uh, it was a show with uh, Jonathan Richmond opened and uh, television was the headline. The early television, you know, Richard Hell, Tom Berlain. Okay. And I said, and I was just like, boy, I never heard anything like this before. <laughs> you know, I mean, so I was kind of amazed. I really dug it. So that was my uh, indoctrination, I think, in the live music. But anyway, going back to your, uh, that's another story, that road trip. But <laughs> like, okay. that was crazy. So when you saw the Mabuhe, you must have thought, oh, this is it's kind of like CBGB's. Or I don't know if I was consciously thinking that, but yeah, the CBGB is sort of like was my shock to my system that got the whole, you know, the whole thing going. Plus the records that I was listening to. But um, so anyway, yeah, I saw everyone was coming through town through the Mabuhe Blondie, the Damned, Ram uh, Ramones, I think. Do they play? I'm trying to remember. They, they, they either did, played there or the Keystone. I think I saw them at the Keystone. They they also had a show um, at Winterland uh, with the Nuns. Uh, well, they would have been, the Ramones would have been the headliner that summer of '77, and uh, that that got talked about yeah. a lot. And, oh yeah, uh, I saw the Nuns. I saw the Nuns early on, and some really fun bands like the Dicks, the Weirdos. Uh, the Nerves, Nuclear Valdez, which I, I thought was a great band. Uh, and I think I even put like Seizure, I almost think of them in that category. But then they got a little bit more punk as they went on. But um, So the guy you're thinking of was Valerie, I think, at Caesar. He's related to the Valerie in Journey. Is that, uh, is that, that is must that right? be it. That must be or, it. I, I knew there was some... Brother. Yeah, I knew there was some uh, association there. Maybe his uh, brother. Okay. okay. But they yeah. like really, they like really liked us. Um, I remember that, and then we ended up like playing gigs with them all the time. Okay. the The one that I, I would always see you all in the flyers with would be the the mutants. Mutants, and we played with Negative Trend a lot, and uh, occasionally we played with Avengers and Prime. 
Do you remember much about the the place at Ethan Howard that he he talks about? I, I gather that you weren't going over there as much, uh, but where where Craig Gray and and um, Brian that guy Brian Campbell lived? Yeah, yeah, I was there. You were there. Okay. I mean, yeah. I don't. Um, you didn't participate in some of the extracurricular. I don't know. I think it might have been some drug stuff going right. on. Yeah, that's that I was. wasn't involved in, so I wasn't there that much, but. That's where all our equipment was stolen. <laughs> oh. Do you remember that story? A little bit. It kind of got, there was a stolen guitar, and that was something that <laughs> I was assuming a lot from, from readers. Maybe I'll have to deliver some extra oh, context that was, here. Yeah, Michael's, but, yeah. That was yeah. Michael's thing with the uh, the other guys. But yeah, okay. we had all our amps, everything was in Brian's uh, truck, on the in the back of the truck, pickup oh. truck, I think, right? And then parked out in front, and Brian was like, under the truck working on it <laughs> like, and so these guys came like they stole everything off the truck while he was under the truck working on it <laughs> like, oh no did you all ever get it back well that that's like a funny story because uh you know we went in and i was talking to michael i said michael uh let's call i'm gonna call the police and michael said uh the police aren't gonna do anything it's not gonna do any good uh you know and I said, oh, I'm just going to call him anyway, you know. So, <laughs> so I called him, and then these cops show up, uh, and uh, they say, "Oh, I think we think we might know where it is." So they like go uh, less than a block away, I think, someone's garage, and this old uh, African American lady answers the door. And she says her grandson, or you know, might have put something in the garage. <laughs> So then they, she opens the garage for them and it's like all this stuff, not only our stuff, but all this other stuff's in there. And we got everything back the same night. Wow. Wow. Okay. And that, that whole time period of the early sleepers lineup, that uh, it was so quick because your first show up, at least up in San Francisco was Christmas Eve, 77. And then that version oh, Christmas of the band. Day, Christmas Day. Christmas or Day? Christmas, Christmas Night. Christmas Night. Okay. And then the last show that I could ever find by that lineup, I'm not sure if this was the last one, was August of 78. So it was just eight months. Yeah, but then that same lineup, we got back together got for together. a while. Right. Uh, but, uh, well, a lot, a lot happened because uh, Michael Kowalski OD'd in, the, in that that spring right early summer um michael had to flee the country because of the the, yeah. the bikers the bikers were going to kill him basically so he went back to canada for a while and there was a rumor in one of the uh, scene reports in slash you know i was able to go back through the archives and uh, of that and and it said rumor has it this you know the sleepers have called it quits because of Ricky hitting his bandmates with the mic stand too many times, but um, oh, that that's was just part bad. of the story. <laughs> that's that's yeah. not true. That I wish that was the that was the I wish that was the worst of it. But right. Well, Ricky used to hit himself in the head with the mic uh, more often than anyone else.
Well, that's what people, they have to like, all this like tragedy and intrigue and that they have to listen to the music because the music, uh, I'm not the right person to say, but people just tell me that it was so uh, groundbreaking. This is what other people are telling me. And so different, you know, from what everything else that was going on and that, the, that we were basically creating genres that would later become, you know, in vogue. That's what, see, I don't like look at it that way because it's just me and my music or me and our music, you know, but this is what people are telling me. Um, and even uh, peers, I think, you know, at the time would say that from what I would find in interviews uh, that, that were done at the time or, or things. And, and I heard somebody describe it as a band's band, uh, d d you know, that, that, uh, but I don't think it, but I don't think it's a band's band in the sense of like musician music. It's just more, maybe there was a more uh, appreciation for, you know, the, the different, you know, you would bring in new songs, like you said, or changing up the set list so it wouldn't necessarily be the easiest thing for a casual uh a casual showgoer to to latch on to at first but well we were forced to uh not forced but we uh to improvise a lot more than other bands because of ricky's spontaneous um style uh in his you know his uh phrasing and his lyrics in the very beginning, we saw, we would sit down with him and try to nail the lyrics, right? Yeah. Which we did, which we did in the very beginning. But then it sort of after that, it was just sort of like spontaneous, and we just write it down after he like, <laughs> like after it after it had come out of him. So that's the like the very early songs. You you would have Michael and I actually writing some of the lyrics with with ricky you know filling in the gaps but i'm talking at you know the very very early songs like the dogs for instance so like like the dogs which you can hear on the uh the miners benefit full tape right that definitely has lyrics from me and michael and ricky collaborating um and you if you can you know it's it's basically sort of a science fiction apocalypse kind of a theme <laughs> like almost like the matrix you know <laughs> before there was a matrix but uh that was kind of interesting and then it and then we just started writing down what we think ricky was saying and then we just get it down on paper you know after that and then and then even later rick we would just let him do whatever he wanted we just never even bothered to write it down <laughs> like <laughs> Right, right. But when I, my understanding of Sea of Unrest, I mean, it, it couldn't have been true of all of it, but um, the the Twilight Midgets records, uh, at least a good portion of it, was stuff that he he came up with and on the spot in the studio, and then learned later. Um, and then and we sort of like did that ourselves. Uh, for instance, the song uh, Linda, that that song sort of came out of thin air spontaneously during uh rehearsal down in san jose it's like the whole thing all the parts everything it just like crystallized beginning with michael tuning his guitar that's okay. where you get that da da da, da okay. you know, that little guitar note and then and then uh tim and i start doing this uh bass and drum thing and then ricky's spontaneously doing the lyrics 
and then all the changes just happened. I don't know. It's just one of those, you know, miraculous conceptions. <laughs> like, right. no, that definitely makes sense when, when you think about it. And you all were, I tried to figure it out on the guitar and I, I decided you all must have been in some kind of alternate tuning because those notes that Michael was playing is not, you don't get those. Uh, well, we were either uh, like at various times, one step drop, in other words, lower than yeah. normal. Yeah. Or even one and a half steps. That makes a lot of sense. Which is things, it's something that like people like Black Sabbath had done, you know. You we weren't the to, first yeah. ones to do that, but. Um, plus, Ricky was a baritone, you know, so it kind of fit in. Right, right. Yeah, it was, but it was still pretty. If I kind of do my mental Rolodex of the, of the you know, punkier bands, there weren't a lot that were tuning down um, at that point. So it definitely adds a little extra dare I say, grunginess. Right, right. <laughs> but, uh, well, we didn't know what grunge, I mean, grunge came later, but you could say that it, it does sound a little bit like grunge. Although I, I do kind of hate the idea that it has to be like, oh, this this gave rise to grunge, therefore it's worth listening to. I, just, I would say the same, like, even if that had never happened, it would still be what it is. And uh, It's just a unique uh, combination of, uh, of the people, like, uh, you know, I was going through this with uh, Adrian, <clears throat> and I was like telling her all the albums that we were listening to, and the, all the albums that we that I found at Michael's parents' house when I met Michael. And you had uh, p interesting things like uh, sticks, UFO, <laughs> sticks, uh, uh, Pink Floyd. I remember he had Pink Floyd Metal. He really loved that album. What about Camel? Um, he had he told Camel. me about Camel. Yep. Did he tell you about that? He told me about Camel. Uh, he told me about listening to a show on one of the radio stations down there called Acid Rock something or some kind of Acid Rock radio show as well. Uh, and he somehow, I know Camel is not really Acid Rock, but he associated those kinds of uh, that period in his life because uh, he was you know he talked about going to see robin trower going to see you know going right. up to winterland and that's another thing that you know, a lot of the like when i was younger and i would read these punk histories it made it seem like there was this really sharp divide uh, between punk and what came before it but so many people, you know, Not so with talk, us, yeah, yeah. And, and I heard that from a lot, like, especially with the, the glam thing, or, you know, Craig told me about being really into Alice Cooper and, uh, you know, certainly Mick Ronson, but there was also a lot, you know, Michael was un pretty unabashed about, you know, Joe Walsh or James gang and stuff that would be, you know, considered dinosaur exactly. music. Yeah. Uh, but, and I was doing, I had been in that, uh, you know, David Bowie, glam rock, Roxy music, uh, phase where I had, was doing a lot of that stuff. And, uh, and Ricky was listening to a lot of Pink Floyd, Beatles, um, uh, you know, one, one that I've heard from one that I got from, from Michael, uh, that he told me Michael Kowalski used to like a lot was the, um, the John Cale solo records and the song uh, "Fear Is a Man's Best Friend." Oh uh, yeah, he was uh, Kowalski was a big John Cale fan. 
What's a really good uh, song is uh, Mr. Wilson by John Cale, which I think I think that song is about it's a homage to uh, Brian Wilson of the Beat Boys. Yeah. You put together the the EP, the the self-titled. Yeah, EP. I did the EP. I did all the artwork. Uh, I I did the mastering. Uh, then Richard Peterson. I got the photo from Richard Peterson when he was in, still in San Francisco, and I did a lot of the mechanicals right at Richard Peterson's uh, studio, just working on his table there. Uh, this is pre. This is all before computers, you know. When you put out the sleepers thing, did you have the idea that you were starting a label or was it really to put out that record? Uh, I created a label. That's so I guess I was thinking I'm going to create a label at the same time. So a win, win was the name okay. win records, which go, which is the opposite of like, you know, like a punk name. Right. Right. But it was like a positive. I was in this rebellious thing where I was going like opposite everything negative that the punks were doing or the, the or some of the other punks were doing uh, maybe that was my inner my inner uh values coming out but uh yeah i did i did that while michael had fled the country so he was not even here right and the the dates are on the back of the record i believe it was uh to like march and june or january and march of 78 where they all recorded i can't remember well we went to the first the first studio in marin or mill valley i think called trace virgos right um that's was supposed to be just a demo but we did uh seventh world no time uh linda there and then that version of Seventh World is not the one that we used on the EP, but, right. but was done. And then, um, so they wouldn't let us have the master because it was like too expensive and we didn't have the money. So they just, uh, I mean, they, uh, they gave us the final mix down, but not, you know, not the, the eight track master. That was eight track. Um, so they kept that. Who knows you know, what happened to that? But uh, and then later, a couple, uh, I forget, what does it say? Uh, a couple of months, few months after that, we went to with Urex Reed, right? Right, who worked at the Mabuhe, uh, and we did a 16 track of uh, She's Fun and Seventh World and Flying and okay. uh, Tewksbury Studio. Would you all rent this for us like four hours or eight hours or? I don't know. It was so uh, insane. It, it's like everything was moving at the speed of light at that time. I don't even know what, what we were doing. We just went out. We need to record these songs. And we just like however long it took. Uh, and, you know, it didn't take that long. So you had a lot more songs that could have been recorded, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was that a matter of that lineup breaking up before you could get back in the studio or? Uh, yeah. I mean, we had, we had far more songs than we knew. We were like throwing songs away and writing new ones, you know, changing the set all the time. Like when we uh, got back together uh, the second time, same lineup, then we wrote like a whole nother 
set of songs that could have been another album and were you all playing uh, you were playing some songs that like theory before you know like in 79 before the later lineup picked those up uh, let's see the uh, first let's see the first theory okay let me get this right um the third time we got together with there was the Roz period, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so then after the Roz period and Ricky came back, because um, the Roz period wasn't working because it was just too, it was just too different. He was just too different of a care of a singer. Yeah, and for the sleepers this to, was, to this really was, work. This is what I call the musical chairs period because Roz. Uh, well, he was a couple of singers removed. You know, they had Negative Trend had a couple of other singers since then, but he still had been in Negative Trend uh, a, like a year prior. And then Ricky at that point was singing with the band that would become known as Flipper. Right. And uh, Bruce was up in Portland where Roz had been on sort of a sabbatical after Negative Trend. So all these kind of um different combinations were, were happening and that was throughout kind of mid 79 like april right. to about november yeah and by the time ricky was back I, that was um uh, i guess we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago that that show that y'all were going to play at the temple beautiful is that right that, yeah the one that got shut down that's right uh talking. yeah because uh i forget who opened for us but they played but then it shut down before we could go on Although we did the sound check, and that introduct that opening tape that is that the same as the the tape you told me that you've recently found that of you and Michael, or was that something else? Uh, uh, it's the same tape. It's the same tape. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, I was just talking to Adrian, who's uh, Michael's uh, partner, before he passed away. Uh, so that is like the uh, I think that's the only song that Michael and I solely wrote and did all the instruments just between us and no one else in the band, just Michael and I. So that's kind of interesting. But um, what was just really up, uh, upsetting and depressing was that it, it was probably a more the most sober everyone was and the most creative we all were at that, you know, at a peak and then, um, just well rehearsed all oh, we were just ready for that show and uh michael and i learned uh link ray's rumble so we were going to do that intro and then we we're going to go into rumble and then we were going to go into like the whole all new set you know which is a lot of new stuff uh and then we did the sound check i remember that but i i think it was you know another feinstein thing where she just like continually harassed the music scene. And then that version of the band didn't last that much long or because it wasn't long after that, that Michael went back to New York. Um, yeah, that didn't. Um, but I remember uh, you were asking when theory was written, I think oh, right. yeah. slightly after that. Okay. Again, when we got uh, back, but I think Tim left. So uh, Jeff Raphael was on drums or, or Tim might've been in there when we wrote theory, but then he left and then Jeff Raphael came in. 
Okay. But anyway, so Michael and I, it was another thing where we wrote the song um, either in rehearsal or just practicing. Uh, I know Michael and I, we collaborated really well together. It's just that we were always fighting about something else, you know. But (laughs) yeah. So that, if you know, what you know what a bridge in a song there's a bridge right so oh yeah yeah so this is like one of those things like uh not comparing myself to the beatles but michael wrote um the first part and then i wrote the bridge and then um ricky wrote the words and uh, and then tim did uh did his thing but i think uh what happened tim left again I'm trying to remember the sequence. Uh, Jeff Raphael came back and then uh, I got upset again and I left, but I had written another song, pretty much just me and Ricky, which was called The Mind about the same time. Uh, And then Michael wrote the outro coda, which sounds like a Peter Gunn kind of a theme at the very end of that song, but I wrote the main song. Oh, okay. And that's yeah, okay. so both these appear on Painless Nights. And then Theory also has a single version, but there's no drummer on the single version. Right. And so when the McLeod brothers came in, did that catch you off guard? Uh, the, the 19, for, for listeners, the 1980 lineup, the, the Painless Nights lineup, um, were, were you wanting to be included or were you just. No, I, I, I just flat out quit because there was issues not musically related <laughs> right but you know other issues in the band and uh and tim quit before i did and uh anyway you know the whole sleeper story there's oh a lot yeah definitely yeah but so really this is- really horrible drug and use and criminal activity like crim- people criminals getting in, in involved with us and you know just really bad stuff. Right. And so that, that was when you, obviously you were working, a, uh, I think you're working at the Stanford Research Institute at that point with your graphic yeah, design job. I had, I, I mean, I had a uh, child, I had a baby too. Oh, okay. At, at the same, at that time. So I think, you know, I don't know if I was consciously getting a little bit more responsible, you know. Right. And you, you always were at the, I mean, every band has a responsible one. I mean, the most responsible one, and you definitely had had uh, that from what everyone has, has told me. And um, but the least, but that, the least irresponsible, the, the least irresponsible. Yeah, <laughs> and and you um, you did put out uh, several more records around that time. The Quiet Room. Yeah, nineteen eighty eighty one was uh, the start, which was a uh, they came out of the Roommates, which is a Palo Alto band. But then the start it was a almost the same personnel, a little bit different. Uh, so we, they did a single. It's kind of a mod uh, thing with some psychedelic overtones. Um, and I got to do the arrangements, and uh, I did lead guitar on one of the songs, like an Ebo lead guitar break, and on that one. And then right after that one, I did the Quiet Room, which is more of a techno. I guess you'd call it. And that was kind of widely played in clubs because of the techno aspect of it. Right. I'm, I'm trying to, some, something Peters. 
Philip Peters. Philip He's Peters. still around. Okay. He, he lives in okay. Pasadena. Okay. He has a band called uh, uh, Intervenus, Intervenus Venus. Am I, if I'm uh, pronouncing that right. It's just he and this woman. It's like a duo. It's kind of goth, uh, goth techno. Okay, and then and then uh, let's see, then half church and and then uh, the quiet room one is the quiet room one um, the most sought after release after the uh, the sleepers, or uh, I think the start was for a while very sought after, and then quiet room started getting to be sought after, so I'm not sure which one. Okay, uh, and and uh, half church. I just uh, I just bankrolled it and executive produced it. I didn't do any uh, technical production on it, and I did the artwork. A friend of mine did the artwork, or both of us together did the artwork. Okay, and I'm I'm cheating a little bit here, looking at the Discogs page, but it looks like the label went kind of on hold um, until the Alex Benitez and John Murray records. Is that... Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. Yeah, and um, so this is definitely something that that is not in in the era of the book, but the the John Murray. Um, tell us about him, because there was some involvement with Tim Mooney as well on that. Is that right? Yeah, Tim or... Mooney did most of the hardcore engineering and production. Oh, okay. On on the on the Graceless Age, which is probably the best John Murray uh, piece of work the one that had all the critical acclaim and especially in Europe and the UK. Um, and we did, they wanted, uh, anyway, Tim suggested to John Murray that I do the vinyl because they had a, a homemade CD on their own label. And then they had that duplicated on another label, but it was all CD. But um they wanted to do a really nice vinyl version. So we did a 180 gram vinyl uh, production of it, which turned out really nice and limited, limited release. I think we did only 250 or 500 copies. Oh, okay. That was not long before Tim Mooney uh, died, right? Right, right. And then um, at the same time, Tim and I, Tim was on my song that I released. He played the drums. Uh, it's called uh, A Love Story, parentheses, stuff is worth repairing, in parentheses, which is a phrase that Tim used. Uh -huh. How much were you obviously working with him on those, but was that the first time you'd been in touch with him for a while, or had you stayed in touch with him over the years? Uh, I did all, much of the Alex Benitez work I did with Tim, and... Uh, also with Bart Thurber, who's from Palo Alto. Bart Thurber has House of Faith Studio in Oakland. So the first Alex Benitez uh, CD, half was done with Tim Murray's studio. I mean, Tim, Mooney. <laughs> Tim Mooney's studio and half was done with uh, Bart Thurber's studio. And then uh, that's where I met the guys in the green door. They were doing a recording, like a demo at Tim's studio. Green Door is a, a new band, a uh, psychedelic cowboy western kind of rock. You, do you know who they, they are? No, I, I, I don't. Um, 
I'm like Rip Van Winkle when it comes to to new music. But because you know Tim Mooney, obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but he went on from the Sleepers to play in the Toiling Midgets, and then kind of bounced around a little bit in the '80s, and then Toiling Midgets got back together. But he was also playing with American Music Club, and he eventually went into that. But did, did were you in touch with him during say like the American Music Club years, or did you notice that he changed a lot in terms of his interest, or was it more just a matter of mellowing out with age, or maybe a little bit of mellowing out, but I, also the music that those guys were doing was more subdued, right? You know, right, like kind of like the Red House Painters, or you know that kind of stuff. Uh, so um, yeah, a lot of a lot of it is just the music you know what was uh appropriate did did tim seem like the same tim that you knew from from back in the old days or i think i think so i mean okay. i met his his wife who's a photographer um i had dinner with tim and his daughter uh during when i was recording this stuff um so tim and i got to be you know pretty friendly again than just before he passed away. Can can we look forward to I don't know what you can tease on this or what what developments there have been but any any uh reissue well we're trying to uh we're trying to do everything on the up and up now that i'm with uh, i'm working with uh not working per se but coordinating with uh, adrian right you know they i mean they were about to get married so it's like you know they were definitely partners all, all i can say is we're we're uh hoping as soon as possible <laughs> that something will happen thank you to Paul Draper for doing this interview and for patiently waiting for me to uh, get it out there and what you're hearing in the background is his song A Love Story Stuff is Worth Repairing with John Murray on vocals Tim Mooney on drums and Alex Benitez on guitar I fell asleep in my Ten color lines We drop one beat too many Walking through the news Drop to break your back Waiting through Newsprint comes from and I'm, I'm setting fire to all that 